And now I would invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. So we continue in the book of Revelation, specifically in the section dealing with the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This evening our text will be Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, better known as the letter to the church at Smyrna. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless this your Word, even as you have promised to us. We ask, O Lord, that you would teach us from your Word, that you would change us by your Word, and that you would encourage us with your Word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is the second letter in a series of seven of letters from our Lord Jesus Christ to the various churches. And previously, we have looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus. You remember the church at Ephesus was a church that was orthodox, but that had lost its first love. And at the same time that our Lord was encouraging them in one hand, on the other hand, He was reminding them that they needed to stick close to Him, to the true meaning of the Scriptures, and to the mission that the Lord had given to them. And now here we have another church, a church in a very different situation, the church at Smyrna. But before we look at that church specifically, I want to remind you of what is said in verse 11. It's the same thing that is said in verse 7 and in each of the other letters. We are to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And so we need to remember that we are not to go about looking at this section of Revelation, trying to decide which of these seven churches is Christ's church in Katy. Not only is that unwise, because we would be tempted to look and say, well, which is the best church? That one must be us church that Jesus has the best to say about. But the other thing is it denies us the blessing and the information that God gives to each of the other churches. So these seven letters may have been directed formally and primarily to one church each, but they were read in all seven. And so we can learn from and take advice from and be encouraged in each of these letters. And so that is the aspect in which I would like us to look at the church in Smyrna. 
Because if we don't look at it as a place where we can learn more about what Jesus expects of us, we're tempted to look at a church like Smyrna to see that it is, it is persecuted yet spiritually rich and to look at ourselves and say, well, we're like that too. We need to be encouraged because we're an awfully good church. We're standing for all the things we should stand for. So the, the purpose here of our Lord is not to encourage us in who we think we are, but rather to direct us to be more like Him. And so what I would like us to see this evening then are three things. First, just as we looked at last time, let's look at the address to the church. The address to the church. We'll look briefly a little bit about the city itself, what we know of the church, and how Jesus describes Himself in addressing the church. Then we'll look at our Lord's understanding of the church. Sometimes we forget that Jesus is not just someone out there, but that Jesus is in our midst. He knows our hurts. He knows our shortcomings. He knows what we need. And this is the situation also in Smyrna. And then finally, we'll look at the hope for the church, the hope that the church can have from the words of Jesus. So the address to the church, understanding of the church, and hope for the church. Let's begin then by looking at the address to the church and by looking at the city of Smyrna. Our Lord directs John to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Please write these words. Write these words. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, what is Smyrna other than a city that might be hard to pronounce? Well, interestingly enough, Smyrna is the only one of all seven of these cities that is still in existence. It's the only one that survives. All of the other cities have passed into history. Smyrna was a seaport about 30 miles north of Ephesus. And so a lot of what was true about Ephesus was also true of Smyrna, just on a slightly smaller scale. It was a rich city. It was a wealthy city, perhaps second only to Ephesus. It was a bustling commercial seaport where many people would come in and out. But also, I think one of the things that Smyrna was best known for was the fact that it was a proud city. This was a city that had a full-time, 24-7 civic group and organization. Pride of Smyrna, they would talk about. We're the city of cities. They actually minted coins that said, Smyrna, first in beauty and size in Asia. Can you imagine that? They claimed for themselves that they were the place where the great Greek poet Homer was born. They built a huge stadium. What better way to show how great of a city you are? It seems that in America today, you can't be considered a first-class city unless you have some gargantuan, expensive sports stadium. They had it at Smyrna. But for those who were perhaps more intellectually inclined, they also had a fabulous library known throughout the region for the books that it housed. And then finally, it had perhaps the greatest theater of the region. And by a theater, we mean more than just a place to get entertainment, more than just an, an ancient movie house. The theater was a place of 
popular culture and highbrow culture and society all built together. It was the place where you passed on the traditions of your culture and society. And Smyrna had a large and famous one. There was also something else that was very unique about Smyrna. Smyrna had a unique relationship with Rome. You see, if you remember in your history, the first really great test of the Roman Republic came in the series of wars against Carthage called the Punic Wars. It was in doubt for a great period of time over decades, a century, which of these great kingdoms, empires, republics would survive. So if you can imagine that as you think about the ebb and flow of our own wars, imagine a World War II that went on for 60 years. This was the situation. And Smyrna was among the first cities to publicly side with Rome. In other words, they got on Rome's side before it became obvious Rome was going to win. And so because of that, there was a deep affinity between Rome and Smyrna. As early as 195, the Smyrnans built a temple to the goddess Rome, Dea Roma. And then later in 26 BC, they beat out 10 other cities in a competition to see who could build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. Tiberius chose Smyrna. Smyrna was full of Roman citizens. It was also full of Jews. There was a large Jewish population. And so there was an odd coincidence here of a large number of Jews that were very familiar with and supportive of the Roman government. This will play into, as we see, what will happen to the circumstances for the church. So this is the city in which the church is established. It is rich, it is proud, it is of Roman heritage, and it is a city in which a struggling church finds itself. What is this church like? Well, we don't know a great deal about the church, but perhaps the most important thing we know about this church in Smyrna is that it was a contrast to the world around them. The world around them was rich. They were poor. The world around them was full of worldly entertainments. And they were focused on the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world around them had no patience for differences, did not want to hear the gospel, was agitated. And of course, they believed that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was the only source of life and hope. So they were a contrast to all that was around them. Additionally, it was during this period of time that very formally the Jewish religion became separated from Christianity. What that looked like was this. It was at this time that the Jews formally expelled or excommunicated Christians from the synagogue. You remember from as. We studied the first part of the book of Acts. That was where Peter and John went to tell others about Jesus. They went to the synagogue to pray and to hear God's word. And we even saw that this morning as Paul went out with Barnabas. And the first place they stopped was where? In the synagogues. They were welcome to come. Perhaps they would outstay their welcome by what they preached or taught. 
But there was no formal separation. But now in this day, to be a Christian would make you persona non grata at a synagogue. There was a formal separation. This led to another problem for the church at Smyrna because once they had been kicked out of the synagogue, they lost the formal right that the Roman government gave to the Jews to worship their God. In other words, when they were kicked out of the synagogues, they became free game, open targets for persecution by the state. They lost their constitutional protection, if you will. So this is the church that Jesus Christ has established in Smyrna. But who is this Jesus that addresses them? You may note that at the beginning of each one of these letters, Jesus specifically chooses to describe himself in a certain way. He takes a portion of the description that John has used in Revelation chapter 1, and he emphasizes it. And here he is Jesus, who is the first and the last who died and came to life. So the obvious question that we would ask ourselves is, why use that term here? Why be the first and the last to Smyrna as opposed to the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand to Ephesus? Well, he is the first and the last, and he is the one who has died and come to life again. Let's look at each of these in turn. What does it mean to be the first and the last. I think the emphasis here, for the sake of the church at Smyrna, is on Jesus Christ in his sovereignty. To put it very simply, Jesus as the one in control. He is before everything, and he is after everything has gone. He bounds everything in his reign. There is nothing that precedes him. Nothing that has authority over him. Nothing will outlast him. Jesus Christ is completely sovereign. He is the first and the last. To use the phrase from chapter 1, He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now imagine how comforting that would be to a church that is being persecuted by the authorities. That is not sure if it will survive or how it will survive. And they hear from Jesus, and Jesus reminds them that He is the one in firm control, not just of history, but of the future and the present. Not just of the big things, but of all the things. Not just of the grand sweep of history, but of cities and towns and churches and people. Jesus is in control. I also think there's a bit of an irony here that perhaps... You know I believe that sometimes the Bible is filled with inside jokes. And I think this is one of them. You recall what I said, how Smyrna described themselves on their coins and their pomposity? They were the first in beauty and size. And it's almost as if Jesus through John is telling the church at Smyrna, you know, they think they're first. But we really know who's first. We know who's the real first. It's Jesus. Don't worry what Smyrna will bring to you. It's Jesus who's first and in control. And then he begins to describe himself as the one who has died and come to life again. Now, we obviously would associate this with the resurrection, but what does this have 
for Smyrna. Why specifically would Jesus use this term for this church? Well, again, I think there's a little bit of an inside joke. Smyrna was famous for being a model city, much like we would consider Washington, D.C. in terms of its architectural layout. You know the stories, the famous architect, L'Enfant, laid out all of the streets as spokes off a hub where the capital was, designed perfectly. Well, Smyrna was designed not in the same way, but with the same fervor. Because, you see, it had been destroyed before the time of Alexander the Great, wiped off the map. It was dead. And then Alexander appointed two of his successors to bring it back to life again as a model city. So here we have a city of a sorts that has died and has come back to life. And Jesus reminds the church and the city that it really is Jesus who is the one who has conquered death. He is the one who has gone unscathed from death to life. He is the one who has died and come to life again. And this reminds us, it gives us a hope that Jesus has victory over death. And so obviously this would be something that would be an encouragement to those who are facing death. To hear from one who has gone to the other side. We understand this even in our own lives, don't we? When we go through sickness or challenges with our children or difficulties in our marriages... What is perhaps the most comforting thing that we can hear? It isn't usually a specific piece of advice. It's knowing that that advice comes from someone who's already gone through it, who's made it to the other side, who might be a bit scarred, but they're alive. There's hope. This is the Jesus Christ who speaks to the church. And he is a Jesus who knows and understands the church at Smyrna. Jesus makes sure that he reminds them that he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. Now, this is interesting in and of itself. Jesus knows the great characteristics of this church, that they have tribulation, poverty, and slander. Not exactly what you would want to put in a brochure that you hand out about your church. Come visit us. We have poverty. Oh, you can get double the persecution at Christ Church. Come and visit us. Do we? We don't consider these things assets. We consider them tragedies. The modern church advertises that they have Starbucks coffee, not just regular coffee during the coffee hour. That they have a professional choir, not just a group of people who sing. You see, here Jesus is reminding them that what is important to him is them. He knows their circumstances and he loves them in their circumstances. Far too often today, the church treats itself corporately the way we warn people against treating themselves individually. We stand and we say, don't puff yourself up before God. You don't need to bring anything before God to be loved. And then we say in our church, we need to be bigger, faster, better, and have more money so Jesus will love us and use us. But you see, this text here reminds us that Jesus loves and uses his church in the worst of circumstances. They have tribulation, which is a broad category that describes suffering. Now, 
I really have to say that as Americans, I don't know that we can understand the true meaning of the word tribulation. You see, because to us, tribulation is we don't get to say prayer before a football game. Tribulation is we get passed over for a raise that we think we deserve. But you see, real tribulation is being a Christian and being set on fire in India. Real tribulation is having your children taken away from you in China and put in indoctrination camps. Now, I'm thankful to the Lord that I don't expect to leave these doors and be set on fire for preaching the gospel. So don't hear me that I say that we should want tribulation to come to us. But I think we can't really understand most of the church in the world unless we try and enter in to an understanding of tribulation because our situation as we sit here in Katy is not shared by 90% plus of God's church in the world. In most places, the church is a, tri- is a place of tribulation and persecution. This church is also a place of poverty. Now, you'll notice there is a close connection between tribulation and poverty. They are right next to each other. And that makes it, I think, a reasonable inference to say that this poverty comes as a result of tribulation. It would be very obvious in their circumstances that it would be hard to make a living as a Christian in Smyrna. They didn't have the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They didn't have governmental bureaus to make sure that every construction project had 4% Christians on it. No, they had the exact opposite. They had the government making sure that Christians were fired, persecuted, run off, unable to find work, unable to feed their families. This would be what the Jews would strive for as well, to make sure that the Christians would be ostracized as much as possible in a way of driving them from Jesus. It would not just be sins of omission, though. There would also be sins of commission that would make them poor. It would be very frequent to find mob violence in a town like this. Imagine if when you went home from church this evening, satisfied with the food of a sandwich supper, you then had an odd feeling because you realized that was the only food you'd eat for the next few days because your house had been ransacked and burnt. All of your goods and possessions dragged away by a mob. That would be a regular occurrence for the church at Smyrna. There would be mob violence and looting very frequently. And yet we need to be reminded that poverty is not something to be ashamed of in the church. They were poor, but Jesus says, you really are rich. James puts it this way. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Now, we may not be poor, we may not have that same level of poverty, but one of the things we can learn from this is that we need to worry, we need to be focused more on our growth with Jesus Christ than the growth of our 401Ks. We need to be focused more on the spiritual growth of our children rather than how good of a job they will get when they graduate. You see, we need to be focused 
on what Jesus is focused upon. This is a church that Jesus understood. He understood in its suffering and he also understood in its persecution. It was a church that was persecuted by the authorities. It is very hard for us to imagine how much the imperial cult permeated all of life. You know, it has become fashionable lately to talk about how much the government intrudes in our life. And I think perhaps the best vignette of that has been the recent stories about the airport scanners, right? They just go, they've gone too far, right? They want to take pictures of me that, you know, look naked, and then they do these intrusive pat-downs. They don't need to be involved. All I'm trying to do is go visit my relatives. Now, here's the thing. Imagine that you had that kind of security, not at the airport, but at the driveway before you got in your car. And then when you drove to go get a cup of coffee when you got out in the coffee shop. And then when you went into your office, they patted you down on your way into your office. And then when you got ready to go for a lunch break, you got a pat down on your way out to lunch. That would describe, in a way, the level of intrusiveness of the imperial cult, the cult that said the emperor is a god in the days of the church of Smyrna. You could not go anywhere and get away from people telling you you were supposed to worship the emperor. They would have bread that would be sacrificed to the emperor that you would buy. They would have meat that would be sacrificed to the emperor that you would buy. They would have days off in which the government would give people money to have sacrifices to the emperor. This level of intrusiveness would come into the church. And imagine what it would be like when someone said, aren't you going to worship the emperor? And almost like Oliver Twist, you look up and you say, no. And imagine the looks, the stares, the violence, the persecution that would follow as a result of that. That's what this church would experience. But it didn't just come from the authorities. It also came from the Jews. The Jews were angry with the Christians because they thought that the Christians had an easy way of salvation. They didn't believe in doing all of the laws that God had given to them. They believed that Christians were blasphemers because they spoke of Jesus as God. And so they attacked the Christians at every opportunity. Now, we haven't seen this very specifically yet in our study of Acts, but we will. Next week when we look at the end of Acts chapter 13, we will see it. We'll see it in Acts chapter 14. We'll see it in Acts chapter 17, how the Jews riot and how they use the pagan Romans to attack the Christians. They say to the Romans, you need to arrest these people because they're not worshiping the emperor. Imagine that. Jews who are supposed to be worshiping the one and only true God, betraying others for failing to worship a false god. Jesus tells us that they were persecuted by slander. And this is true. Christians were referred to as cannibals. Why? Because they were eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus. They were referred to as immoral, lustful, because why? They had these love feasts in which they gathered around and had dinner and we don't know what else went on. They were accused of breaking up homes as someone was converted and they left their father or mother or their children. 
They were accused of, if you can believe this, of all things, of atheism. Because they refused to believe in all of the panoply of gods. And they were, of course, accused of political disloyalty. They were slandered day and night. This was the situation that the church faced. Jesus knows this. And so what Jesus does is, He brings hope to the church. He reminds the church first that it is a place where they do not need to be afraid. Look at what He says in verse 10. Do not fear when you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. It's very emphatic. Don't be afraid. And Jesus speaks straight with them. He says, you're going to suffer. Things are going to happen to you. You are about to suffer. But He reminds us that it is God who is in control we don't need to be afraid, even as we, we head in our call to worship and as we sang in a mighty fortress. God is our refuge and our strength. It's like Jesus told us in Matthew 10, that we are not to fear those who can kill the body, but rather fear those who can cast body and soul into hell. And so there is a suffering that is about to come, but it is not outside of the authority of Jesus The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, Jesus says, that you may be tested. There is a purpose here that Jesus has given. And for ten days, you will have tribulation. Now, what is this ten days? I think it refers to the same sort of period of time in which Daniel was tested in Daniel 1. Do you remember when he was given ten days to test his food as opposed to the king's food? It's a reminder that this persecution, this suffering is definite. It is certain, but it is not forever. It has a definite beginning and end. And so there is hope on the other side of this. Suffering is not forever. And Jesus also reminds us that there is something on the other side of suffering. You see, there is something that is there that we can look forward to, that drives us through the pain and the difficulties we have. And this is something that encourages us, I think, in in any manner of our life. You parents know this, right? How do you get your children to finish dinner? If you're like me, most of you say, you know, when you finish dinner, there's a chocolate cake waiting for dessert. There's an apple pie waiting for dessert. You remind them of what is on the other side. We see it as we grow older and we don't care so much about dessert. We do the hard work of college and we suffer and we sweat and we stay up all night. Why? Because we know there's a degree on the other side of that. It's what gets ladies through pregnancy, isn't it? The stress, the tiredness, aches and the pains because we know that the child is coming on the other side. You see, this is something that our Lord knows our frame. And so he says, a blessing awaits for you on the other side. There is a crown of life, eternal life waiting for you. Death has no hold on you. Because I have appointed you to life. You will not be hurt by the second death. This tells us in verse 11. 
We will not face judgment. That final judgment, that final separation from our Lord is what is meant by the second death. So what does all this mean in conclusion for us? It means that the same principles that were involved at Smyrna are involved in Katy. As you struggle with health issues, as you feel slandered by others, as you feel persecuted or put upon at work or in your neighborhood, as you are not sure if you can make it through the tribulation that's before you, Jesus says, you are in my hand. There is a crown of life awaiting for you. This trouble is but for a short time. And it's a part of my purpose, Jesus says. So we can learn from that and have hope in the midst of the most trying times of our life. We have hope because we look to Jesus. Let's pray.